good to be back after a couple of weeks off for some needed rest. This is exhausting what I do. Well, not really, but in any event, uh, appreciate a thumbs up in the chat. Uh, since, since it's been a couple of weeks, I'm kind of rusty, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe I haven't hit the right buttons to make this thing work. I do see the comments that have come in before I started the chat and some questions. And uh, I have those, so we'll talk about them. And we're going to talk about Ohio State football briefly. And I'm going to share my portfolio with you for whatever that's worth, and then I'll answer your questions. But still waiting for a thumbs up. I do see Noreen is here, which I am grateful for. Happy New Year, Noreen. Thank you for being here. Ah, Vinyl says, hey, Rob, everything is good. All right. So let's briefly talk about Ohio State football. So first of all, I watched both games, Michigan, TCU, of course, Ohio State, Georgia. Both games were phenomenal. I mean, just fun games to watch. I came away very happy with Ohio State. I mean, obviously, I didn't like the outcome. But I, to me, they showed that they're every bit as good as Georgia and much better than, than when they played against Michigan. And my view was that game was the championship game. That, that was my view. And we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm rooting now for TCU because I'm just going to root for the underdog. Uh, I think the, 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 you know, apart from missing the field goal, which was by no means a gimme, it was a 50 yarder thereabouts. And I know uh, Day, the coach, got some grief about how he handled the, the last few plays leading up to that. I thought they should run it, but whatever. What do I know? Obviously, the big thing for me was the hit on, on Marvin Harrison Jr., which to me was clearly targeting. Um, and for those of you that aren't into college football, the targeting rule, I'm not a huge fan of the way it's actually applied in many cases. You can't lead with the crown of your helmet, period. You know, uh, that didn't happen. I don't think that was the case in the hit. But but it, with a defenseless player, imagine a receiver going up for the ball and they're not bracing for the hit. It's not like a running back who's hitting the line and ready to take a shot. You know, this this is a, a receiver that's extending for the ball, or in this case, who's trying to catch it in the uh, at the back of the end zone. He's clearly defenseless. I don't think there's any that I've read any doubt about that. And the hit was clearly to the head, the neck and, and, the, and the head uh, area. And it's just, it's textbook targeting. How they could mess that up with a booth review. That, that's the thing. They got it right on the field and messed it up in the booth review. And by the way, if you're a Michigan fan, they did the same thing to you. They caught it right on the field. That was absolutely a touchdown. There's no question in my mind. Now, the angle we had wasn't great. You'd like to be able to see it right down the line. Maybe booth review at a different angle. But from everything I saw, he bobbled it basically where they marked the ball. He's still bobbling it, fell into the end zone and caught it and controlled it. It's a touchdown. I don't know what they're doing there. It's outrageous. Probably none of you care about this. Probably not anybody. I won't even do a poll. Poll, was that targeting? I'm, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. All right. Um Enough of that rant. But I was very happy with the way Ohio State played. They played. They've not haven't had their best receiver, arguably their best receiver the whole year. Uh, although Marvin Harrison Jr. is just phenomenal. Can't wait to see what he does in the pros. They haven't had the running back Henderson all year. Their tight end went out. Of course, for all I know, Georgia had a lot of injuries too. I don't really know their players. Uh, but uh, Ohio State just a very their the depth of their talent is just phenomenal, and you know. Kudos to Georgia for coming back in the fourth quarter. But even then, Ohio State had a chance to win it with a 50-yard field goal. Um, and our, our kicker can easily – easily, maybe that's an exaggeration, but can can make that shot. That's not a crazy uh, field goal for him. 
But boy, did he, I don't know if it was the hold or him or what, but boy, <laughs> it wasn't even close. I got, he kicked it. And I said, I looked over with my mom and wife. And I said, I think I could have kicked it like that. And I thought, well, no, probably not, but it's close. Okay. Enough of that. I appreciate, um, you know, you guys tolerating my rant on Ohio State football. All right. So I'm going to show you my portfolio. Now I'm showing you this for two reasons. One is, you know, I talk about my views of investing. I think it, you, it's, it, and you're kind enough to listen. Uh, I think it's only fair of me to show you that the way I talk about what, you know, investing is actually how I invest. And it's interesting because I got an email from a viewer named Paul, uh, who uh, emailed a, a fair amount. And he was quoting some, apparently Bingen thinks he's a, Bingen, as we know, if you watch the interview I had with him, he's a market timer. And he thinks people should get out of stocks, not completely, but significantly reduce their stock exposure, which is completely contrary to all of his research. And that's troubling. I mean, of course, everyone can invest however they want. Uh, but it's surprising to me. And I don't do that. I have not pulled out of the market. Um, any changes I've made this year were mainly to try to simplify my portfolio, but the asset allocation didn't change. Um, anyway, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, I don't I just want to disclose what I own. Now, this isn't really a stock picking channel. I do own a few individual stocks that I'll show you. Um, but, you, you know, it's just good to disclose it um, for that reason. Why I'm not showing you this, I'm not showing you this because I think this is like the perfect portfolio or it's what you should do. Obviously, I think it's reasonable or I wouldn't do it, but all right, enough chit chat. So here is the portfolio. I'll actually try to copy this and put it below the um, uh, below uh, the video after we're done. Uh, it's basically an 80-20 portfolio. I am slowly moving towards 75, maybe even down to 70. It's actually, there's some rounding issues here and some cash that's not reflected here. So if we actually add up these bonds, which come to 1016, and tips, which come to 1007, you, know, you roughly get 20%. I think in reality, it's probably probably closer to 23%. Um, but as you can see, it's basically, basically we'll call it an 80-20 portfolio with the bonds. It's half in nominal traditional bonds, half in tips. I don't have my I bonds in here, which would, would affect the percentages a little bit as well. Uh, most of my traditional bonds are in just the Vanguard, you know, BND, uh, total bond fund. I, I have started using this bond blocks Bloomberg six month, basically to hold some cash that I'm going to end up spending. It's a very small amount, as you can see. And I, but I also have individual T-bills. I'm probably going to roll them over in, just into the bond blocks fund, I think. Just easier. Um and then for tips, it's just tip funds. The only reason I've got three different ones is because of where they're located, different places. Although you could own any of these pretty much anywhere. I don't know that I'd own, I don't know, in any event. That, that's it. I have three different accounts, but they're all intermediate term tips funds. And that's my bond. That's it. That's bonds. For stocks, uh, let's start with U.S. stocks. So the vast majority right here is in VTI. I actually... Part of this is in the, the mutual fund version of this, but it's the same thing. Uh, and then um, I have a small amount in the Schwab Dividend Equity Fund, 2.37%. Uh, this, by the way, is all in tax-advantaged accounts because of the extra dividend. Uh, and, and, and then I have, uh, this is really 10%. I'll explain what I do in a minute, but eight point, we'll call it 8.67 for now 
in the Vanguard U.S. small cap. Um, this isn't a taxable account. There's gains in it, so I'm not going to sell it. I, you know, we've talked about other small cap funds. Uh, I think this is a reasonable one. I think if I were picking today, I might pick a different one, but it's fine. Uh, the reason, so when I do my allocation, small cap is 10%. But when I do the allocation, I ignore my individual stocks, which are right here. And if I took those out, this would be roughly 10%. And then I add the stocks back in. It's just how I've always done it. Um, I don't know if it's the best way. It's a simple way. And I can always dial in the exact overall allocation I want just by changing the allocation I'm going to use, excluding the stocks. hope that makes sense in any event. With stocks, my big one is Apple. It always has been um, largely. I mean, I have far more gains in Apple than I do basis cost basis. And this is also what we use to give to charity, uh, which we did some last year. And then I've got three and a half percent in Berkshire, uh, oh, about two and a quarter in banks, maybe two and three quarters uh, between Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And then I've got a little bit here in Deer. Uh, and that's it. That's the portfolio. Yeah. I've gone away from emerging markets uh, as a separate fund. Obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but these two funds both have emerging market exposure. So I have emerging market exposure. The one thing that's missing that I've had in the past is a separate REIT fund. And that was one of the hardest decisions for me. I just decided trying to keep things simple, I wouldn't use a REIT fund. That, you know, who knows? Maybe in the future I'll change my mind. Uh, but I was comfortable with that decision, just trying to keep things simple. So there you have it. That's my investment portfolio. No idea. If it's a good one, it works for us. We lost money last year. I think everyone did, just about. All right. So that's my, uh, you know, my portfolio. I'll probably eventually get to any questions you might have about it. Oh, well, here's one. Is this in retirement or brokerage? So that's a good question. Uh, so first of all, all of the stocks... I'll, I'll boldface that all of the stocks are, are in my in a taxable account. Whoops. Um, all of the small cap are in taxable. Part part of this, I'll call it roughly fifty percent, but part of the total stock market U.S. is in taxable. Uh, and then uh, the the T bills are in taxable. And so is this, it's effectively a T-bill fund, is in taxable. And this international fund is in taxable. Yeah, I think that's right. All the tips are in, in the total bond are all in uh, retirement or tax advantaged accounts. Uh, so is VXUS. So is SCHD, the tips, as I said. And, and again, a good chunk of this is in um, the tax-advantaged account as well. We, we may be somewhat unusual in that most of our investments are not in tax and not in retirement accounts. I don't know if that makes us makes it unusual or not, but there you go. All right. Uh, I'll just get a couple of these questions out. Do you hold any cash? Well, I kind of view T-bills as cash. Uh, myself, I go technically they're not, I suppose, but it's pretty close to cash. 
And we do have, that's not reflected here, some cash in checking accounts. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's mainly, you know, to cover like the next uh, month or two kind of thing. And all right. Yeah, that's good enough. You may have more questions. I'll eventually get to them. So let me get to the questions that folks were asking before the show started. How do I get, how do I hide that comment? Uh, I'm going to do this and then that. Okay. So Andrew wants to know thoughts on selling VT, which is sort of a global stock fund, U.S. and international. Uh, it's a Vanguard fund. From a taxable account to max out the Roth IRA. Um, in a target date fund would otherwise dollar cost average in through the whole year, but VT is basically flat. So he's saying there's no tax consequences from selling VT. And I'm guessing, I don't know, you're going to take that money and fund a, a Roth IRA. Um, I, I, part of it depends on what, I mean, presumably this is all for retirement, no matter what you do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, I don't know that I have a strong view on this one way or another. Um, if you if you take out VT and put it in a Roth IRA up to the limit, let's say, then I take it you're going to still have other money you're saving that you, that you would have otherwise dollar cost averaged into the Roth. And that's got to go somewhere. And where's it going to go? Into VT again or, or somewhere else? Uh, well, I guess it's up to you. So I don't, I don't have a strong feeling about doing it one way or another. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe I'm not thinking about all the issues, but I don't know that I have a strong view one way or another on that. Joshua says, as I set out on my annual rebalancing task in my no bond portfolio, trying to determine if minor adjustments to my allocations make sense. I struggle with international. Oh, don't we all? Given the past, but understand the future is unknown. He currently has 10% in an international fund. Does a 10% allocation even matter? Bump it up to 15%. Well, it's a good it's a good point. I do think there can be allocations that don't matter. When I see, you know, some advisor portfolio with 37 funds and they've got, you know, 1.12% allocated to some asset class, it's like, yeah, I, I don't know how helpful that is. Um, I certainly think 10% is significant enough. I've got no problem with 10%. Now, whether that's the right allocation to international, it's really the only a question you can answer. I'm perfectly more comfortable. I'm personally more comfortable. Again, ignoring my individual stocks and just looking at the, the fund portfolio at around 20%. Um, I will tell you, I've been doing a lot of reading about market performance globally over the last 100 years. And, you know, I, I know that U.S. stocks have outperformed for long periods of time. But I'm telling you, I wouldn't get comfortable with that. Um, that's my view. So I... Uh, I I, uh, I I like international. You know the exact number. I would put for me. I would probably put ten percent at the bottom, twenty maybe twenty five percent at the top. Let's uh, do a poll because you know how much do you have in international stocks? And we'll say zero percent. We'll say um, zero to five uh, percent. And uh, we'll say zero to ten percent. Then we'll say ten to twenty percent. And then we'll say 
20 plus percent. I don't know if this makes sense. It's good enough. There you go. Let's see what, what other folks are doing. I know the numbers overlap. That does kind of bother me. But okay, while you're answering that question, let's see here. Matthew says, Happy New Year. Right back at you. I love new, the new year. I like this time. You know, this year I haven't done a whole lot of New Year's resolutions. I'm still thinking about that. But it is a time to sort of reset priorities. Um, think about, you know, the last 12 months. Think about the next 12 months. I like this time um, personally. Okay. Paul says, I am curious in what ways your experience as a securities lawyer in D.C. carried over to your personal finance career in a positive way. Thanks for all your insight. Great show. So um, so I was, uh, for those that don't know, I was a lawyer. Uh, I did a number of different things, but for the last 10 years of my career, I was uh, in the auditing field. So I was in, I was an enforcement attorney in, the, in what's called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB, otherwise known as Peekaboo. And so we investigated the auditors of the financial statements issued by publicly traded companies. And uh, so we investigated uh, if we thought for some reason they did a bad job, which is to say their audit didn't comply with PCAOB auditing standards. We would investigate that. We would, you know, we asked for their work papers. Uh, we could call them in for testimony. That's what they call it. It's a deposition effectively. Uh, and then we could bring a case against them. Uh, that's heard before a hearing officer uh, at the PCAOB. That's what I did. And then the last few years, I actually went back to my old firm, Winston and & Strawn, and defended auditors. Uh, and it was actually during this time that I started my first personal finance blog and started writing about personal finance. I do think I spent a lot of my time then in spreadsheets, crunching numbers, looking at financial statements, understanding disclosure requirements, uh, understanding auditing standards, understanding GAAP, uh, general accepted accounting principles. And so I, I do think it kind of sparked the interest. It was already there, but I think it kind of fed into it. Uh, and so I think there's probably some connection there. But I mean, as a practical matter, you know, the things I was learning and doing at the PCAOB really have absolutely nothing to do with personal finance and investing. I suppose it gives me some insight into 10Ks and Qs, but I've probably forgot as much as I remember, if not more, um, because I'm just not spending my days anymore reading Qs and, and Ks and 8, 8Ks. And um, so, you know, you, you've, you know, it's been, goodness, how long has it been? Well, I retired completely six years ago, but really retired almost 10 years ago. And I haven't been at the PCOB for 12 years. So, they, you know, I've, I've, I'm sure I've forgotten a lot. But good question, Paul. How are we doing on the poll? What do we got? Uh, so 21% of you don't have any. That's interesting. I want to ask a follow-up. I wonder, here's what I wonder. Um, okay, I'm going to ask a follow-up question that applies just to use zero percenters. Give me a second. So zero to 10% is 33%, which is the biggest portion. Um, actually, I'm going to include you in this next poll. Uh, 10 to 20%, 26% of you, 20 or more percent, 18%. I, you know, we're going to do this. this is a good poll. I got an idea here. Okay. 
for those with 10% or less in international stocks, how old are you? And there's only going to be two, two answers. Under 40, 40 or older. I'm sure I could word this differently. So here, that's the question. For, for those, I've got the those capitalized. For those with 10% or less in international stocks, how old are you? Under 40 or 40 or older? No cheating. Okay. Uh, by the way, my guess is most of you are under 40. I could be wrong. We'll find out. Okay. TF says, I am tempted to move everything to a target date fund. Wife and I are mid-30s. Not asking for investment advice, but why not But why not switch from core four approach to target date in IRAs and Roths? Yeah, so none of this is investing advice. You have to do your own thing. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm not a financial advisor. Um, and I have no problem with using target date funds. I think it's a very simple way to go. Uh, if it's in IRAs and Roths, you can move into it without tax consequences. I would check the, the expense ratio. Not all target date funds. First of all, they're not all index funds or based on index funds. And they're not all uh, you know low cost funds. So, you know, even for the low cost, you're probably going to pay a little more than the, than the, the weighted average uh, expense ratio of, say, a core four type of portfolio. And for those wondering what core four is, we can actually look at it. I think we can look at it um, in Portfolio Visualizer. I think they have core four. Let's see. Am I missing it? Where's core four? I thought they did. Here we go. It's Rick Ferry's core four. And it's U.S. market. The percentages can vary. They're not set in stone. But for Portfolio Visualizer, U.S. market's 48%. REITs are 8 International is 24 Total U.S. bond market is 20 And so that's that's the portfolio. You can use any number of index funds to implement it. And, you know, it's done pretty well over the, the, the long haul. Anyway, the one thing I would say about target date funds is that I, I don't like them as you get near retirement. I think, that, in my view, they get too conservative for most people. So that's something to think about. All right, where am I? So the next question is, what is your view on Paul Merriman's Vanguard tax-deferred ETF portfolio? I confess I'm not sure exactly what that is. The stock portion is 50-50 U.S. and international. Okay, I would lower the international portion down to 20. Ah, yeah. So I don't know that I've studied his, his tax-deferred ETF portfolio, but I agree. For me, international at 50 is too much. To me, 20 is within a reasonable range. Um, Ethan, with a non-financial question, which frankly are my favorite, did you see Magnus win that five-minute speed match after being four minutes and 30 seconds late? I didn't, but I saw clips of it afterward. Ma By the way, for those who don't know, Magnus is the world champion. Although he has forfeited that crown or will, he's not going to defended. But now we have different championships. We, you know, we have sort of long time period games, sort of more traditional, but then we have speed chess and rap, uh, rapid. And he walked in almost with, you know, if your clock goes to zero, you lose. Doesn't matter what's going on on the board. It's a five minute game, meaning each side has five minutes. Your clock runs when it's your turn. He showed up late. 
four and a half minutes had burned off his clock. Now, I, there had to have been a um, some sort of increment where they add a second or two for each move. I'm pretty sure that would be the case. But yeah, he won with just 30 seconds. But no, that doesn't surprise me. Now, he wasn't playing, he was playing a very good chess player, but he wasn't playing like, I don't think it was a top 10 person. And then Jesse says it was a three-minute match. Okay, he showed up only 30 seconds left. I thought it was more than that in any event. He did show up late. All right. Last question before before I get to like the ones I can actually show you on the screen. As per earlier video on I-bonds, yes, tips rates look better now, but if there's deflation around the quarter corner tips can lose principal while i bonds not well I, I i wouldn't i don't see it that way i bonds are affected by what goes on in the market with interest rates and so on well i actually i shouldn't say that there there is some truth to that you have to keep in mind that i bonds are not publicly traded there, there's no market for i bonds and so you don't see prices fluctuate but it is true there is a floor um you know, the inflation rate could go to zero, but it's not going to go negative. With tips, it's kind of the same way, sort of. The principal balance of the tip can go negative, but at maturity, you are guaranteed to get, you know, the, the par value of the bond. It's interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk, well, in some quarters uh, about the risk of deflation. I, I just don't see it, but what do I know? Certainly in the short term, there might be, not like short term meaning now, uh, but down the road, the Fed gets control of inflation. They start to lower, you know, we go into a recession. They, you know, I could see some deflation there, but I, it's hard for me to see long-term deflation, but you know, what do I know? All right, good questions. Let's see about the poll. Look at you, so I was so wrong. 77% of you are older than 40 with 10% international stocks or less. I I stand corrected. Okay. Very good. All right. All right. Let's get to questions I can actually show you on the screen. Alex says, hey, Rob, I'm so happy to be here. Alex, I'm happy you're here too. All right. So uh, Dane asks, what type of account is best for bonds, Roth or IRA? And I assume uh, what that means is a traditional IRA. We've talked about this in the past. I personally put my bonds in a traditional retirement account, whether that's an IRA or 401k, doesn't, doesn't really matter as far as, for me anyway, because those are going to be subject to required minimum distribution. Now, by the way, that's gone to 73 and in 10 years, it jumps to 75. Uh, and so uh, assuming that bonds return less than stocks over the long term, I just as soon have a lower RMD requirement. With Roths, since it's tax-free, as I've said, I want those to grow as fat as a tick, as my mom likes to say, who may or may not be watching. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, what's is it? Peter Thiel, is he the one that put his PayPal stock in a Roth and it's like a billion dollars now or something that's tax-free? I don't know. I may have that the, the specifics of that story off a bit, but that's sort of like the extreme example of what I'm trying to achieve. In my case, it's with a tad less than a billion dollars. 
a rounding error, I'm sure. Okay, so that's my approach, Dane. I, I, I think it's sensible, but I could be wrong. Hmm. So Jesse says, I'm considering DSTL, I have no idea what that is, but we'll look at it in a minute, as my U.S. equity holding. A focus on cash flow seems like a better quality VOO, VOO, S&P 500. Why wouldn't one want to use a factor like this for a core holding versus an index fund, S&P? Well, I don't know. Let me look it up. DSTL. Is this a St. Louis fund? I have no idea. Distillate. U.S. fundamental suitability, I'm guessing. Is that what this means? Suitability and value. Uh, okay. Um, let's take a look at it. Never heard of this one. Never heard of distillate. Distillate. Do I have the saliva in the right spot? I'm not even sure. It's a five-star fund. So it's, you know, uh, a large cap. It's, it's sort of on the border of large and mid. Uh, and it's on the border of blend and value. By the way, something like an S&P 500 would probably be up where this red dot is. But here it is. Um, what does it own? So it's got 100 equity positions. We can see that here. Uh, pretty large, you know, companies. I guess it is a large cap fund. One thing I skipped over, and I'm sorry to be going back and forth. Do you guys get a headache when I like do this? Is that like, okay. Anyway, I'll stop doing that. Um, yeah, expense ratio is 39 basis points. One way to look at this fund, we can go to performance for a moment. Uh, I'm curious about distributions. So the distributions haven't been in, in 2022 is 55 cents on a, um, whoops, why did it do that? 55 cents on a $40 nav. So that's not, that's a little over 1%. It's pretty, pretty consistent with an S&P 500 fund. I wonder Let's, I want to look at it in Portfolio Visualizer. Well, actually, we can do this here. We can look at the Risk tab. What I'm trying to get at is... So the standard deviation, which is just a measure of volatility, is a little higher than the S&P 500, I think. Um, but within, I mean, it's probably pretty close. Its beta is 96, which means it basically follows the market. One one dot one a one in beta would be it follows the market exactly. Let's put it in here and see how it's done. I don't know how much data they have. We'll put a hundred percent here. We'll put a hundred percent vu just to compare it. How much data do we have? And eh, not much. So it's a pretty new fund. We've got what three years? Uh, four years. Uh, and it's done pretty good, 16% versus 13%. Standard deviation, basically the same. Uh, so at least over, over this time period, now, of course, it's a very short time period. 
And like, if you go to here, they're basically even. That was November of 2021, but it's done much better in 2022. I just don't know why. And I would have to dig into this fund more to understand how it's investing. But for those interested in looking at alternatives, this might be a good fund to, to investigate. What I would do to investigate it is go to the fund site itself, which is here. And I would start reading the fact sheet and the prospectus. I'd want to I'd want to know how do they invest. Um, given the expense ratio, it's got to be some sort of quantitative approach. They're not paying a team of advisors to try to pick and choose the best stocks. At least I wouldn't think, uh, because for for an actively managed ETF, which is really just to say it doesn't track an index, uh, that's pretty inexpensive. Um, but so uh, thanks for mentioning it. I'll check it out down the road. Um, and other folks can too, if it's something you want to investigate. You know, it's not a lot of data, four years, but yeah, it's done particularly pretty well in 2022. All right. Let's see here. So Jay, uh, Jay Anderson, what are your thoughts on how much someone should save in a tax-deferred account so they can take advantage of low tax rates during gap years in early retirement? Uh, I'm trying to figure out the how much part. I don't know how to answer that. The theory is this. You put money aside in, in tax-deferred uh, accounts, traditional IRAs and 401ks, you get the tax benefit while you're working. You're, if you retire, we'll say early, meaning before you take Social Security. And of course, that would obviously also be before RMDs kick in. Uh, and so you have these years where you don't have much income. And you can then do Roth conversions of that money, uh, potentially tax-free, depends how much you do, or, you know, with a low tax bracket. Uh, I suppose one way to think about it would be to figure out when you're going to retire, how many years you'll have to take advantage of these Roth conversions, and how much you're going to want to have so that you can convert up to a certain tax bracket. Now, what those numbers would be would, be de would depend on what tax bracket you're willing to go up to, your own view of future tax rates, I've never really thought about it that way. I've just maxed out accounts. <laughs> um, but I suppose, you know, you could certainly look at it that way. I wonder if new retirement could help you do that. It's possible. Help you model it. Um, by the way, I mentioned I did a video on Projection Lab. I do have a video coming out probably next week on Maxify, which I like a lot. Uh, but I did a, a video on this software um, a while back, one of the things it didn't have at the time was tax analysis. New Retirement does, Projection Lab did not. Let me take the uh, comment off the screen. It does now. Now, I haven't tried it, uh, but it does have um, a way to model tax liability, which was, which was the big thing that was missing from this tool. I just mentioned that. Okay. MW says definitely targeting. So, I, I mean, it was obvious. Okay. 
if you're just joining, you're like, well, what was that about? Yeah, you should have should have joined on time. Okay. Huh. Coach, uh, this is how much I know about Georgia. Coach Smart, I don't know, is that his name? I have no idea. Won the game by calling the timeout. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Although, you know, that, that doesn't work as much as it works. I've always wondered if that's the best way, you know, freeze the kicker. I don't know. Oh, that wasn't the timeout. It was on the fake punt, right? That's right. That was another one. They gave him the timeout and they shouldn't have. And the whole explanation afterward is ridiculous. The ball would have been snapped. Oh, but the, the official can stop it. No, it's ridiculous. All right. It's probably not. It's probably technically the right, right way to do it, but. I'm going to call foul. All right. Let's see. Adopter says or asks, how much of the U.S.'s outperformance, I, I'm going to assume that's in comparison to international stocks, since 09 is fair to attribute to, to uh, qualitative e easing, you know, the fund, the, the Fed, um, buying up bonds and whatnot. Low rates when people compare to DM developed markets, I guess. When they start to cut rates, may feel pressure to go near zero again, but hope not. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, if you look at, if you compare U.S. stocks, they outperform in a lot of other time periods. They don't in the first decade of this century, but they do in a lot uh, in, at the, towards the end of the 20th century. I mean, there has been a pretty notable outperformance, I think. But I, I still think it's I, I don't I don't have confidence that it's just going to regularly repeat itself over the next 20, 30, 40 years, particularly with our debt. Eventually, eventually the amount of our debt and deficit um, debts, you know, our, our total that we we owe and the deficit is basically what we're adding to it every year. That's eventually got to catch up with us. Now, it's interesting if you think about that when it does catch up with us. Of course, the question would be, what's that going to look like? But but if it if it adversely affects the consumer here in the United States, the government has to raise taxes, for example, uh, and they have to raise rates more often to, to control inflation and all these things, that will affect co companies outside the U.S. So it could actually affect international stocks too. Well, that's interesting. I don't have all the answers there, but I'm much more comfortable spreading my chips around the globe, as it were. So I get this question every now and again. This is from Curly Q. I have a government pension. Congratulations. Should I use this as my fixed income portion of my portfolio and keep my IRA at 100% in stocks? I, I personally don't like that approach. Uh, the idea is, you know, it's, it's guaranteed uh, at least as much as the government can guarantee anything. It's probably adjusted for inflation, but I guess I shouldn't assume that. But uh, and so it's it's secure. That's what the bonds portion of a portfolio is supposed to do. It give you the security. So, you know, you could calculate the um, present value of it and use that as your bond allocation. Or like you've said, just it's just my bond allocation. I don't need to do a present value calculation. I'll just put everything else in stocks. I think the better approach is to say, great, I've got this pension. Maybe you've got Social Security coming. After I use that, how much do I need to take out of my portfolio? on top of the pension and other, any other fixed income. And what percentage of my portfolio does that represent? Because let's just assume you still have to spend in year one, roughly 4% of your portfolio. 
what history tells us is that 100% stocks is, is, is creating some risks uh, in your uh, portfolio that um, you might not want to take. One way to do this is to show this, I think, we're going to use FICalc.app. We're going to assume a 30-year uh, retirement. We're going to assume a $1 million portfolio. We're going to put it in um, all 100% uh, equities. And um, we're going to do constant dollar. And so this shows a 95% success rate, which is great. Um, and that might be good enough for you. Uh, but you will see periods of time. Of course, this is true even with, as I think about it, even with a, um, uh, even if we went, let me just let me just do this. It's interesting because the data they use is different than the data that Bill Bingen used. And so you get slightly different results. Actually, what this shows is it's not bad. You can go 100% stocks. The problem is, and this is where I, I one, one area where I question FI Calc. I need to reach out to them. I've talked to them in the past. I don't believe that this actually would succeed. Uh, well, I guess it does have 1929 as a, as a red box, doesn't it? I was gonna, that's what I was going to say. I don't believe this would exceed, succeed in 1929. The reason being that between 29 and 31, stocks got clobbered. Yes, we had deflation, which helped, but stocks got clobbered. But it actually shows us for 1929, it runs out too. In any event... That actually wasn't a good, I don't think, a good demonstration for this. The risk is another 1929 event with 100% stocks. And you saw some other years that failed. So th that would be the question. But 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 on the other hand, you may say, Rob, I don't need 4% because of my pension. I only need 2%, in which case, you know, history tells us you can invest your portfolio just about any way you want to, and um, at least with respect to the 4% rule. Again, no one knows the future. I can't predict the future or guarantee it. But based on the information we have, if you're just taking out, you know, one or two, two and a half percent, um, you probably, you could, you know, based on historical uh, data, do 100% stock. If you're needing four, four and a half percent, five percent, I think that gets a little dicey. So that's how I would like to think about it. What percentage do I still need to take out of the portfolio? And I set my asset allocation based on that. That's the approach I would take if I were lucky enough to have a pension, which I'm not. Okay. All right. What else we got? So Jargon says, for someone who enjoys evaluating stocks and financial reports, what allocation is appropriate for speculative stock selections? The answer is 0%. On the other hand, if your question was, what allocation is appropriate for uh, investing in sound businesses at a good price? then I would say 10%. Now you might say, okay, Rob, but wait a minute. Aren't you at like 18? Yeah, because Apple stock went up. What can I tell you? That's my view. I wouldn't go over more than 10%, but I'm not going to sell a, a good company just because I've, I've it, you know, it performed well and I've gone over that percent. That's, But that's, you know, again, this is no right or wrong answer. You just, you wanted my opinion? There you go. Ah, Dinesh says, did you see Ben Felix's 2.7 withdrawal rate video and podcast? What do you think? I, I did. And I've actually recorded a video re responding to it. It's going to be published Friday. Uh, but I'll give you my take on it. He, he, he first uses two studies, which I talk about 
in the video. They both kind of say the same thing. What they say is, look, the 4% rule relied on U.S. stock bond and inflation data. And that's biased. We're sort of, you know, we, we, have, we have hindsight here. We know that things worked out in the United States over eh, the last hundred years. And, but the truth is we got lucky. And, and so you say, well, I mean, lucky, what's that mean? Actually, the 4% rule goes back to 1871. Are you telling me we've been lucky for 150 years? To which I think that they would say, yes. What does that mean? Why have we gotten lucky? Well, we haven't fought a world war on U.S. soil. Um, Pearl Harbor, well, an exception, but apart from that, we haven't fought a world war. Uh, you know, World War One and World War Two were not fought uh, uh, again, excepting Pearl Harbor, uh, on U.S. soil. Uh, and some of the crises, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, resolved in a way, you know, very peacefully. It could have gone the other way. And so uh, the, the two studies, one says effectively that U.S. investors, when they invest, have this idea that we're sort of immune from these sorts of things. And so they're willing to pay more. And if you look at equity returns, there's about 2% historically of equity returns are, are basically because we got lucky. And if, 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 if investors didn't feel like these things can't happen in the U.S., it would be priced differently. We wouldn't have that extra return. The other article says uh, uh, what it did, the second article said, look, we're going to take all developed countries and they have a way to define it. I think there's 38. And we're going to look and see what, how the 4% rule would work in each of those countries just using uh, their markets, one, or also including international stocks from that country's perspective. Like for, for the U.S., international stocks mean companies headquartered outside of the U.S. But if you live in Germany, an international stock, of course, is a company located outside of Germany. And it also does some things with longevity because Bill Bingen used 30-year assumption and they use Social Security Administration data and then do um, a, a fairly complicated simulation to come out with 2.7. I don't find those studies to be as, as nearly as meaningful as Ben does for a couple of reasons. The first is, I would absolutely agree that anything could happen in the future, but I don't view, for example, the fact that we didn't fight World War I or II on our soil as being purely lucky. I suppose luck plays a part in it, but geography, I think, is a huge factor, right? It's much easier for Germany to invade Poland than it is for them to invade the United States. Uh, and so, yeah, yes, I know we have, we have obviously much different weaponry today, long range missiles, faster uh, jets, cyber war. So there's all kinds of bad things that can happen, including in the United States. I don't really see uh, the fact that World War I and II were not fought in the US for the most part as just pure luck. I, I just don't see it that way. I also think our form of government, as imperfect as it is, uh, gives us a leg up. Now, um, obviously, other countries or other we're not the only democracy. But when you even you looked at the developed countries that this study focused on at various times, uh, they had governments that just appropriated assets. You know, and now you say, well, couldn't that happen here? Well, anything can happen here. But do do I think that's a risk? 
that's great enough that I need to factor it into my plans. No. Obviously, anything can happen. An earthquake tomorrow could carve California clean off. We could be down to 49 states. Uh, so, you know, and I didn't like the way I, I get the idea of looking at international returns. I didn't like the way that study did it. I think actually Wade Fowl did this. And I might have that up that I can show you. I, I mentioned it in the video. Or I showed it to you in the video. Oh, here it is. I do have it. Let me take the comment down. I'll show it to you. Wade Fowl did this study. I don't know when this was. What's the date of this? He doesn't put dates on his articles. Anyway, uh, here's the safe max is actually the uh, Bill Bingen came up with that term. It's just the, the, the safe withdrawal rate. Again, everyone uses slightly different data. Bill Bingen actually puts it closer to four and a half to 4.7% now. But here, the way the way Dr. Wade Fowl calculated, it's 3.9%. He does this world portfolio. I haven't dug into this to see where he got the data, but he basically, and I don't know what percent allocation he used, but he used a world portfolio that came to three and a half. But to me, this is more meaningful looking at it this way, because when you look at the developed countries, and I, this is probably more details, anyone even still watching, it's probably more detailed than you guys want, but I get into this stuff. It's kind of fun for me anyway. Uh, you know, like they had Latvia and Estonia and in, in Chile. And, you know, I'm thinking, I, I get that those, you know, they, they've defined those for certain periods of time as developed countries, but I'm not sure that makes it an apples to apples comparison. Um, and so why not just use a world portfolio? Why go to all the hassle that that study went into? This to me is more interesting, which I guess shows a slightly lower safe withdrawal rate based on whatever assumptions uh, Dr. Fowl used. The other thing, and I'll just, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, you you didn't, had no idea you were going to un, un, unleash this, did you, with your, with your question? Um, so I've got chess pieces. Uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Yeah, hyperinflation. So forget market returns. It's, it's inflation that really doesn't get enough attention. But when you're adjusting your withdrawals each year by the rate of inflation, I mean, if you look at the 4% rule in the U.S., what created it? The inflation of the 1970s. That's why one of the worst years to retire was like the 68, 66, depending on how you calculate it. Why? Stock market returns? Well, they weren't great, but it was inflation. But a lot of these countries, in fact, let's look back at the Wade Fowl. Look at, look at the worst ones. What do they have in common? Austria, Japan, Italy, France, Germany. Tough World War I and or World War II events in those countries. Take Germany, for example. It had hyperinflation in the early 20s. So if you go back to this, he says the worst year to retire in Germany is 1914, right here. Part of the reason was actually because of the, the hyperinflation in, I want to say, 1918 to 1924-ish. There was a time when the prices in Germany were doubling every four days. Imagine what that does to the safe withdrawal rate, right? So... Uh, you might say, well, Rob, can't hyperinflation happen here? I, I guess so. Yeah, I, anything can happen. But I just, I didn't find those papers helpful or useful. Um, I suppose, you know, I mean, we could imagine any kind of calamity, environmental disaster, as I mentioned, a cyber war. I guess there could be hyperinflation in the U.S. Um, and things will get bad and ugly. And when that happens, we're going to all cut back, maybe by necessity. <laughs> you know, it's not even a matter of trying to conserve our money. I don't know. There may not, may not be anything on the shelves to buy. So I didn't find, I, I think Ben and I 
on the 2.7 and those studies, we see things differently. However, Ben did say at the end of the video, look, at the, the reality is these safe withdrawal rates based on blindly adjusting your spending by inflation really aren't probably the best way to plan anyway. You got to have, you want to use dynamic uh, spending uh, uh, withdrawals where you can change how much you're taking out. And, and we've talked a lot about that. And that's tend to tends to be how I think about it too. You know, if the if bad things happen, I'm not going to Thelma and Louise my, my you know, our, our, our money right off the, the retirement cliff. We're, we're going to cut back, right? Woo! All right. What time is it? 7.52. Okay. I've been wearing glasses more and more, and I, I, I looked at the time. It was a little blurry. I looked around for my glasses, but they're upstairs. I have no idea where I was. Okay. But we've got a new viewer named Phil. He says, I'm new viewer on YouTube. Welcome. Question. Portfolio visualizer. <laughs> Portfolio visualizer is a good tool for me to start today. Question mark. Other options to see everything in one place. Well, I don't know what you mean by everything in one place. Portfolio visualizer. I got to find it again because I've got a couple of, of tabs open. Bear with me. Portfolio visualizer is a good way to evaluate investments, compare them. It has actually a lot of tools, many of which we haven't even looked at. Regression analysis, um, Monte Carlo simulations. You can save a portfolio, but I believe you can see I'm not logged in. I do have a paid account and we can look at pricing. I think with, and this starts at 19 a month. Yeah, you can save and import portfolios. And I think it's a really good tool. There are free options. I mean, I've talked in the past about personal capital, which is a free option. Um, you know, I, I have a spreadsheet that you can download for free. If you just Google best investment tracking spreadsheet, I think my site comes up maybe. Yeah, it does right here. And um, yeah, I mentioned personal capital, but uh, you know the idea there is you connect all your accounts and then it brings in all the data, which gives you some great things to look at, but not everyone wants to do that and I get it. So um, this takes you to, it's a, just a Google sheet. I am slowly working on a revision, but you can easily track all your investments there. So a couple of options. All right. Uh, yeah, so that, that's Mr. Crank says, how do you evaluate a tips bond fund? Sounds like you weren't excited about the Fidelity fund. No, that's not really true. It's different accounts in different places. Um, uh, I, I don't really. I just want an, inter, an intermediate term tips fund, low, low expense ratio. That's really all I care about. After that, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, Noreen, we have a problem. Nix for me says, go dogs. Well, congrats. I, I can be a, a, a good loser. That sounds wrong to say that. Although sometimes when I play chess, I think I'm a really good loser. Man. Okay. What else do we have? Tim says, loved your top things to do at year end. 
which was a video you'll see on the channel if you haven't watched it. Thank you. Those are always fun. I, like I said, I like this time of year. Um, I don't like tax time. So uh, John wants to know why I don't own. No, that's the wrong one. Although it's worth pointing out that John's rooting for TCU. Okay, here we go. Melissa, why don't you own small cap value? Uh, so I had some money to invest in a taxable account. This was back in 2018. I, I think I put it in the Vanguard small cap value. And if you you may recall, at the end of 2018, stocks went down. So I had some tax loss because I lump some. That's what I do. Um, I had some tax loss harvesting, and I just I didn't I took it out of the, the Vanguard small cap value and put it in just the Vanguard small cap fund. Uh, I think if I were doing it over, I probably would have put it in a different value fund. I am a, a fan of small cap value. Uh, whether they'll outperform a blended fund, though anyone's guess. So yeah, I do like small cap value. Um, but that, that's sort of the history of why that happened. I'm okay where I am, but I, I do like small cap value. You know, it sounds kind of wishy-washy. It's like, well, Rob, wait a minute. What is it? Do you like it or don't you? Why aren't you? After 30 years of investing, I, I, I become less um, dogmatic about certain things in investing, like you got to have small cap value. Uh, you know, it's kind of like hand, horseshoes and hand grenades. And asset allocation, close enough, works for me. Yeah. Well, so uh, Bloop, I'll say, asks, what do you think about the new 529 rules as a way to pre-fund your Roth IRA? You got to be careful. So what the new rule says is you can roll over uh, 529 funds, uh, I think it's up to 35,000. Is that the number? Into a Roth IRA. But let's see here. 529 rollover to Roth. Here it is. Oh, I have an ad blocker and some of these sites go nuts. I think it's 35 grand, right? Yeah, 35 grand, but but I'm also pretty sure that it's only the beneficiary that can do this. There are limitations that restrict the financial. No, that's not what I want. Come on. Pretty sure this only applies to the beneficiary, not the account holder. But why is this not clear in this article? How hard can it be? That's annoying. Okay. Saving for college. When can there oh also you have to hold the account for 15 years? Um yeah, the beneficiary also cannot. I'm pretty sure it's just the beneficiary. So I think the idea behind it is, you know, you put money into 529 for your child or grandchild and you never know, oh, they're going to go to college or not. Of course, you can use money now before college as well. There's limits on that each year. So the idea is, you know, you save for college, you know, 15 years go by, they don't go to school. They can take that money and roll it tax-free into a, into a Roth IRA to save it for college. I mean, for retirement. 
I'm pretty sure that uh, that's how it works, but I wouldn't describe it as pre-funding your, the account holders Roth IRA. Now, the great thing about the live Q&A is that if I'm wrong about that, you guys will let me know. You'll say, Rob, you're an idiot. Uh, so Sean says it's either the account holder. Eh, let's try it out. Can an account holder roll over 529 to Roth IRA? That wouldn't make sense to me if that's the rule. But it'd, it'd be interesting. Because if you think about it, everyone could just, you just start 529 plans. Why not? You know, at least up to 35,000. You and a significant other, spouse, roll it over. This is the same stupid article that didn't answer the question. I need to ask ChatGPT, although I don't think the data goes up. It's not current. Well, I don't know the answer. And I don't want to spend more time searching for it. So that's, a, that's homework for you guys. I mean, I why should I be doing all the work? Not that this is really work. Okay. Um, so Jargon says, I've been told that dividends from an international fund can cause some nightmares at uh, tax time. Well, there are some differences. You know, taxes paid internationally can serve as a credit. Um, but I don't do my own taxes, so uh, it's not a headache for me. <laughs> I, I do recall when I was doing my taxes with TurboTax, and I am going to do a, a video and have an article on my view of the tax software that's out there. Um, I did have some trouble with it myself, actually. Uh, but at the time, I didn't have enough international investments in a taxable account to really care about it. Um, but my accountant doesn't seem to have an issue with it. So there's that. All right. Jeff says he's late again. What time did he show up? Oh, you weren't that late. I think it was Jeff, maybe a different Jeff, I can't remember, that emailed me about the either the Wellesley or Wellington Fund and about getting hit with dividends. Let's see here. What's the ticker? I can never remember the tickers. Uh, V-W-E-L-X. So if we go to the Wellington, I don't, I think this is the 60-40 fund. Let's see. Yeah. Let's look at performance, and then we'll go to distributions. Come on, Mornies. Yeah. So the thing about this fund is that it distributes capital gains every year, sometimes short term. So it's just not a great fund to own in a taxable account, in my view. And again, Jeff, I don't remember if it was it was you or a different Jeff, but I was got an email, I think today. Apparently, someone uh, had a loss on this fund, so they sold it before this capital gains was distributed, took the loss, going to wait 31 days and buy it again, uh, which, I, you know, I take no issue with that approach. I just don't think that is a long-term approach because most years you're not going to have a loss. You're going to have a gain. And there's no point in selling with a gain because that's going to trigger, you know, capital gains. Um, so I, I just personally don't think this is a good fund to own in a taxable account. And if it was a different Jeff, well, I'm sorry. Okay.
<laughs> so I, I, I kind of chuckle. I don't mean to, Scott. I, I hear what you're saying. He says, I have a Treasury Direct account for one month. He's been locked out twice, tried to enter all my information twice, abbreviated, unabbreviated, with, without hyphens. I can't change the password. You're probably going to have to call him. The Treasury Direct site, I've never had any trouble logging in, but it is an antiquated site. They did update it on not their login, I don't think. Maybe it's a good thing. If I can't take any money out, neither can hackers. <laughs> I don't know. I feel for you. I don't have an easy answer for you. All right. <laughs> Ram says, pray for me. I'm entering my numbers for 2022 net worth as I listen. Yeah. Godspeed, my friend. I can tell you our net worth is down about 140%. No, that's not true. That's not possible. Well, I guess it could be. Um, I think we're down roughly 10% net worth. But again, that's not just investment returns, you know, and we've, it also factors in some gifts to charity. And um, yeah, we're down maybe closer to 11%. Yeah, what are you going to do? It's part of the bargain. It's part of the deal when you when you when you live and invest. All right. What do we got? I'm kind of skipping through. If you want to ask me a question, try to tag me if you can. I just it's easier for me to find. I like seeing you guys banter back and forth. It's like I could just, I could go for a run and you guys, you know, you'd be fine without me. I don't run anymore. I did, I did hot yoga. Have I told you that? I think I told you I'm doing hot yoga. I did that today. It's not super hot, right? Like Bikram yoga, which I'm going to try. It's like 105, 107, something like that. Uh, I'm doing the more of a flow. So the difference is with Bikram, you can hold a pose for, I don't know. I've not done it, but from what I've read, a minute or more. With flow, many times you're only holding it for one breath, but other times maybe 15 seconds. So you're, you're moving a lot more. But it's good for uh, getting all the kinks out. Oh, Matthew's got a question. Hey, Matt. Uh, he does my timestamps for me, among other many uh, important things. Do you believe that someone's term life insurance policy should be should be worth 10 to 12 times their annual income? Um, as a general rule of thumb, I've heard 10 times, but that would really be the beginning of the analysis, not the end, right? You, you need to think about one, who's who's relying on the income, right? So if you don't have anyone that's relying on your income, you don't need life insurance, at least you know, some people want something for funeral expenses or that sort of thing. But but if no one's relying on your income, you, you don't need much, if any, life insurance. So, you know, as you get older, maybe the kids grow up, they leave. Um, certainly when you get to retirement age, you just don't generally need life insurance, which is why a lot of these indexed universal life policies, they don't tell I mean, they tell you, but you know, they, 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 they advertise permanent life insurance as a plus. Oh, and you've got life insurance forever. Yeah, but 
I don't need life insurance forever. It's like the training wheels on a bike. It's great that I have them, but eventually I don't need them. So why would I keep them? Particularly when they're very, very expensive. So then the question is, all right, if you do have someone relying on your income and you were to pass away, what's that going to look like? I factor in how much debt do you have? Is the other person working or not? And what what uh, sources of income do they have? I think the idea behind 10 years would be, um, you know, that it would give the person uh, a long time to uh, adjust to the loss and to adjust their finances. Um you know, a lot of folks will look at it and say, well, I want enough life insurance to replace my income until the kids are um, out of the house, maybe through college, including tuition. So they'll calculate it that way. I think it's a reasonable approach as well. But as a, a general rule of thumb, 10 to 12, I think is reasonable. But again, I, again, I would use that heuristic as a starting point to the analysis, not the ending point. Okay. It's like, I'm not following most of the banter, but then I see something like this. It's kind of funny. Not funny, but India infrastructure is way behind China on all levels. No idea what you guys are talking about, but you guys are going deep. Okay. By the way, uh, is VJ from Michigan here? I haven't seen him. So Jeffrey says, I have most of my money in a 401k plan and recently retired. What are your thoughts on moving it to a traditional or Roth IRA, is there any advantage to either? Well, those are really two very different questions. Let's first just talk about a 401k to an IRA, ignore the Roth part of it for a moment. I'm going to assume your 401k is a traditional. Uh, so uh, the one advantage uh, to an IRA is you get to pick where it is and then have pretty much unlimited investments. Now, depending on your 401k, you know, like with uh, uh, through Fidelity Brokerage Link, you may have unlimited investments as well, but or you may have a 401k plan, and just love the investments. And so, if that's the case, there might not be any reason to roll it over. Uh, depends where it is, if there are any limitations on how you can take money out. So, you'd want to look at that. Um, if you do roll it over to an IRA, I usually put it in a, in a specific rollover IRA if it's traditional. There are some you know, better creditor protections on a 401k plan than just a regular traditional IRA. It may or may not be important to you, but it's a factor to consider. Um, I kind of like IRAs, you know, all of those factors you, you got to run through, but all other things being equal, I like being able to pick where my IRA or my money is going to be. But again, you know, you've got a 401k, let's say it's at, I don't know, Vanguard, and you're very happy there. There may not be any reason to roll it over. Now, the question of Roth is effectively, are you going to do Roth conversions? That's a tax question, lar largely. It could be other factors like RMDs and are you, is some of it going to be left to your loved ones and, you know, like meaning you don't plan to ever spend it. But whether you're going to move a traditional into Roth is really a tax question. And whether your, your tax, you, you can pay less tax on it converting it today than you would pay if you didn't convert it and took it out, whatever, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And yes, that can be a difficult you know, question to answer with precision, with certainty, because there's just so many unknowns. Um, you know, tax laws can change. You don't know exactly, of course, you know, how maybe how much you're going to take out every year. 
you know, you could be married and get a divorce or a spouse could die and that would change your tax rates or you could be single and later get married. I mean, there's, you know, there's all these different factors. You could decide to do qualified um, charitable uh, distributions out of your, out of a, uh, an IRA um, and count that as part of your RMD. So, you know, there's a lot of factors to consider into that, but it's ultimately a tax question. So hope that helps. I know it's kind of hard. These are deep, important questions. It's kind of hard to give them. I try to give a meaningful answer in like 45 seconds. I don't know. Whew. Okay. Randall wants to know my thoughts on maintaining investment accounts across multiple custodians. As an example, Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab to hedge account security risks. I like it. I'm a big fan of having your money in more than one, one with more than one broker. Yeah, we have ours in four. Okay. This is a good point. I want to bring this up. Danielle says, you need to watch taxable income in your early retirement years if you're looking to use affordable health care plans because, you know, it could affect any any uh, benefit you're going to get from the government, any credits, you know, to help pay for health insurance, that factor. And Irma, as you get to, what is it, age? Of course, Medicare kicks in at 65, but if, I were, if I've got it right, Irma years would be either 62 or 63. I think it's 62 maybe but the point is they look back a number of years i think it's three years um so that's another factor you need to consider when you're thinking about taxes and doing roth conversions in those years you know it's a lot the analysis is a lot more than just your your marginal tax bracket bracket i don't know it's uh, your tax, you know, effective tax rate and a lot of different things affect that beyond just your bracket. I don't know why I'm saying it that way. I'm tired. I'm an answer. Okay. Um, a VJ. It's funny. I clicked on this. I didn't even see it was from VJ. I'm sorry. I guess we're both the Big Ten. You guys played well. You got robbed on that review. If for those who didn't watch, long pass, I don't know how long, but long pass, he catches it as he's falling down into the end zone. He juggles the ball, then finally secures it, falls on his back. I think clearly having broken the plane of the end zone, that white line. And that's how they ruled it on the field, touchdown. Booth review took it away. They said no. He was down before he reached the end zone. I think totally wrong. On the next play, they well, okay, fine. They're on the half-yard line. They'll score. They fumble. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. What's your question? My wife's 401k has, quote, State Street U.S. Bond Index Non-Lending Series Fund Class M. Are they any good? I have no idea. Let's try this. State Street U.S. Bond Index non-lending. Oh, M. It actually comes up. It's like a predefined Google search. 
I'm looking to see if Morningstar, now that's index K. Well, we may look at it. Here's fun, here we go. Well, Voya has it, I don't know. Is this it? Lon class M, let me take the comment down. Um, it's managed using an index strategy. Does it say? Let's see. What index? Oh, here we go. Looks like it's a, just a, um, I don't know how well you can see this. I'll try to make it bigger. Here we go. Looks like it's just a, a Bloomberg, the U.S. Ag Bond Index Fund, which would be um, the same as like a BND. This is as of September. Do we have a ticker? I would love to see a ticker. We have, so we have this. This is this is different. Yeah, I I mean this looks to me like it's it says it's tracking the performance of the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate the uh, bond index fund. So I would think this is just. Um, like a BND, let's look at for example. We can let's go to BND for a second, and we're going to go to portfolio. So this one is as of September, so it's a little bit dated, but it's showing a a, a ten year return of boy that that just seems so low, doesn't it? Eighty eight basis points. Um, what's the ten year return of BND? Yeah, it could. It's probably roughly the same thing. This is ten-year return of one percent, and that's as of this is going to be as of you know December thirty-first. So my guess is this is just a U.S. Ag. You know, that's what it says. So I think it's a, a good bond fund, in, unless I'm missing something, which is very possible. Um, yeah, the benchmark. This is got to be just a, a U.S. Ag. Yeah. So this is. I think this is like a BND. Treasuries, 41%. Treasuries. And this is 50. That's interesting. Well, this they can break it out a couple of different ways. Mortgage-backed, corporates. Um, so I'd probably want to look into it a little further. I don't know how much data I can get on it, but it looks to me like it's not unlike BND. I would, if I were you, VJ, compare the perform the, the year the twenty twenty two performance with of that fund, which I assume your wife will have can log in and get it with B and D. I would suspect they're very similar. Huh? Adam said the same thing. We're going back to the Ben Felix uh, video. He said yes. I screamed out geography when I watched the video by Ben. Um, Again, you know, bad things can happen. I mean, we all we all know that really bad things can happen anywhere, and maybe maybe we'll be in a you know, God forbid some sort of awful war here. We have, you know, it does seem like you know these wars happen around the world, but not here. It's kind of what we've grown accustomed to. We had nine eleven, of course, but that's very different. As awful as that was. You know, I mean, can you imagine fighting a war in Toledo? I don't, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know why I picked Toledo. Okay. 
All right. So I'm clearly catching up on older comments, but Vinyl says that the war in Ukraine shows dictators can act irrationally. It's part of my view, um, my worldview. So Putin, if you think about the, 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 the horrors of what's going on in Ukraine right now, of course, unspeakable things in, in Ukraine itself. But think about for a moment what Putin is single-handedly doing and without any accountability doing to the Russian people. He's affecting his country and its people. It'll have generational effects. Um, and there's no accountability. You can't, you, you can't speak out. There's no freedom of the press. Um, he, you can't vote him out. You know, whatever you think about any of the past presidents, they can be voted out of office every four years. You know, uh, representatives every two, senators every six. Uh, and we can say anything we want about them. Let's go on Twitter. People do it all the time. Uh, and we have a press. Uh, yeah, people say, well, there's liberal, there's conservative. They're not objective. But, but at the end of the day, that sort of total voice is being heard daily. And it's something that you can't do in a lot of countries in, you know, around the world. And when you concentrate that kind of power in an individual, you get the kind of results you're seeing now in, in various parts of the world. Again, it doesn't mean that bad things won't happen here. Um, the, the reality is, though, my view is, that, you know, over the next 50 years, some bad things will no doubt happen in the United States and anywhere else around the world. The thing is, is we won't we won't have any idea what they are. We won't be able to predict them. They'll hit us in ways we just weren't expecting. Well, that's a happy thought. Okay. Well, oh, I, the, the comment just went away. I have a question. I'm going to ask, as we're kind of, kind of getting towards the end, I'm going to ask another question. It's a simple one. Did you change your asset allocation um, in 2022? Yes or no? And the idea here is, uh, you know, maybe you got more conservative. Maybe you sold some stocks or some bonds because you know the market or or whatever. Maybe you had a maybe you had nothing to do with the market. You changed for some other reason. But I'm curious how many of you, you know, I, I would say more than say five percent. You know, some minor change. You know, you could argue you didn't, you change your asset allocation if you didn't rebalance, right? You know, within a few percent's fine, but outside of say 5%, I can tell you, uh, I can't vote in my own poll. I did not, I did not change my asset allocation. Oh, let's see. Here we go. Marco. Marco Polo. Hmm. Is the age of 40 too old, too late to start investing for retirement? No. That reminds me of, so my mom was going back to college to become a teacher and she was like in her forties, as I recall. Um, and she said, she had the same kind of question. Am I, am I too old to go back to school? I said, well, mom, look, here's the deal. You're going to turn 45, God willing. I think, let's say she was 40. I don't remember the exact age. You're going to turn 45 someday. And you can either turn 45 with a college degree or without a college degree. What do you want to do? Of course, you got a college degree, taught for, she's still, she's still teaching. She's a great teacher. Um, 
You say, well, Rob, what does that have to do with this question? I don't know. It just seemed like a fun story to tell. Uh, look, I would start saving for retirement at any age. If you're 40, you'd, you'd rather start saving now than when you're 45. Start start today. So absolutely. Double Dog Blitz wants to know if you missed my analysis of the Ohio game. Yes. Um, it's at the start of the video. It wasn't a whole lot of analysis. I will say this. So we lost to Michigan because of our defensive secondary and poor coaching. Knowles is the defensive coordinator. I think he more or less did a pretty good job. I mean, look, Georgia and Ohio State have two of the best offenses in college football, maybe the two best. So it's not like it's going to be a low-scoring game. I don't care how good your defense is. Uh, but what Knowles did was primarily played a zone. So it, you know, it allows some of the shorter passes, but keeps you know reduces the risk of, of big plays. But it was just like the Michigan game. There was one play, and I looked at it. So in Michigan, they did what's called a cover zero, which means they blitz everyone but the cornerbacks. There's no safeties back there. I don't know what they call it in college. I guess I don't think that's an NFL term. I guess it's the same. I don't know. But it was cover zero. And as the play before it snapped, I'm like, what are you guys doing? And I thought, no, you're going to back out two guys. This is just a fake. You're not going to really blitz everyone. They blitzed everyone. Michigan scored a touchdown. So I'm watching the Georgia game, and they're playing his own defense. I'm thinking, thank goodness. All of a sudden, cover one. There's a safety back, but everyone else, the lineback, everyone are right up at the line. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Touchdown. I don't know about Knowles. Everyone is all high on him. I don't know. I think he's made some very questionable calls. Of course, it's easy for me to sit in a, in a, in a recliner with some pizza and complain about the coaching. I'm not in the arena. What do I know? Do I have a website or contact information? You could probably help me with some questions nearing retirement. Well, the odds of me helping you with questions that you email me are slim to none. I do read every email, although I'm way behind, but I generally don't respond. I just can't. I don't have the time. But I do have a website, robberger.com. There's contact information. You're welcome to send me an email. Um, it, they may become part of the show or a future video. So in that sense, but um, yeah. All right, four more minutes. We got another TCU fan. It's just, you know, I, I am going to root for them, but it's hard for me. I don't know, Georgia. G Georgia is a much better team than Michigan. Uh, that's the problem I see for TCU. But, you know, hey, anybody on any given night, can TCU beat Georgia? You bet. So Josh wants to know why intermediate term tips funds versus short term. I've always just been an intermediate term bond investor. I'm comfortable with that risk reward. And um, you know, one could argue that you get a more pure inflation protection with shorter term. At least I've heard that argument. Um, but I, I view those investments as long term, even as someone in, you know, I'm technically not retired, but I'm getting there. Uh but, but my point is I'm not spending that money right now. But um, that's just been my trade-off. Uh, I'm comfortable with that interest rate risk. 
Of course, it didn't work out this year, but what did, right? Cash worked out. What else we got? Okay, so this is from Hybrid Cap. He says, the rollover can only be made to the beneficiary's Roth IRA, not that of the account holder. That's what I thought. So, but again, you know, you want to confirm this, you know, with someone other than, you know, a YouTube person or commenter. <laughs> as much as I love YouTube. All right. How'd the poll go? So 60% of you did not make changes to your asset allocation. Very good. 40% did. I talked to one person who sold like half of their investments and moved it to cash, which worked out for them, right? But they were they were saying, you know, I I don't know when to get back in. I said, yes, that's that's part of the problem. Uh, you do this, and now you're like, now what do I do? It's tough. And then if you're going to do it repeatedly over 30 or 40 or 50 years of investing, you got to get it right both ways each time. I don't know. Maybe some of you can do it, but I can't. Let's see. From Noreen, a good question from, uh, I guess, a different viewer. I'm 23 years old and just started a new job. My employer offers 5% match, but I'm not sure if I need to pick the regular IRA or Roth IRA. I think you mean regular 401k or Roth 401k if it's an employer. Um, and so as a general rule of thumb, if you're in the lower tax brackets, um, I tend to personally prefer Roth. And that would be up to maybe... What are the brackets now? 22, 24%. If you're in the like up into the 30s and you're in a high tax state, I kind of probably would go with um, a traditional. But I think for most people, again, as a general rule, I would personally prefer the Roth. By the way, that is another change that I'm pretty sure made it into the um, spending bill. In the past, if you had a Roth 401k with matching contributions, the matching contributions had to go into a traditional pre-tax 401k account. So you effectively had two 401ks. Under the new rules, I think they can go into a Roth 401k. Unless they took that out in the final version, but I don't think they did. And you might say, well, that's that's helpful. Boy, aren't the people in Washington nice? Well, not really. Um that helps them raise more revenue, right? Because if it goes into a Roth, you get taxed now. And that helps them satisfy you. They can't, they've got a certain budget constraints over a 10-year period. So my guess is that stayed in there because it helps them. The CBO scores the legislation to make sure there are no, you know, everything is paid for, so to speak. And so they they end up kind of including these oddball rules that help them generate income. That's in fact, that's why we have the backdoor Roth. It, it was a result of getting the scoring they needed from the CBO to pass the legislation. This many years ago, not in the current bill. Oh, you got to love our government.
All right, what else we got? I think since it's already 8.32, I'm going to bring this to, and I'm going to go all the way to the bottom. So Josh said he changed his asset allocation because he learned a lot about investing and realized there was a better ways to invest. You know, uh, it's a good point. I mean, there are good reasons to change your asset allocation. Certainly as you age and get nearer to retirement, that makes sense. You could have changes in your life circumstances. What I tend to try to do is not, if I'm going to make a change in my asset allocation, I try to do one of two things, plan it out. So if I'm nearing retirement, okay, I'm going to change it this much each year. And so it's it's sort of written, it's a plan, it's it's set up, and I'm not going to deviate from that plan because of what's going on in the market. Or I kind of try to wait if I can to when the market's not, you know, it, it's not a bear market, it's not some crazy bull market, it's just sort of puddling, you know, just moving along, bumping along, not doing much. The point is to make sure I'm not trying to justify to myself, I've got some real reason to do this, but the real, only the real, the real reason I'm doing this because what's going on in the market. Did that blundering response make any sense? Probably not. All right, gang. Um, well, I hope you have a great 2023. I look forward to spending much of it with you, at least Monday nights at 7 p.m. I am working on more videos, so I'm going to have one tomorrow. Oh, no. When, what's today? Monday. When I have one on Wednesday about using uh, 0% credit cards to get out of debt, which is something my wife and I did years ago. Friday, I'm covering the Ben Felix video. I've got MaxiFi review coming out, I think, the following week, and a lot of other things. What do I have? What do I have kind of in the pipeline here? That one's done. I was going to do one on my portfolio, but I just made it part of this video. So that's done. I'm going to do one on broker brokers that offer bonuses, sign-up bonuses. I have an article on that. Maybe I'll throw it in the newsletter. What I'm, what I, but I'm going to do it. One of the requests I have is, if you guys know of good bonuses when you open up a new brokerage and transfer whatever X dollars, I'd like to hear about it because I want to create as comprehensive a list as I can. Um. Anyway, I got a bunch planned, but I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to publish one every Monday, Wednesday, Friday this month. We'll see how it goes. All right, gang. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's good to be back. Hope you have a great week. And until next time, remember the best thing money can buy is financial freedom.